Good to be with you. My name is Larry Gibson, and I'm a retired pastor. Retired from the Oregon Conference a little over a year ago. And uh, the poll to Florida was four grandchildren. Is that, a, is that a good enough poll? Some of you probably know what I'm talking about. My lovely wife, Kathy, is back here, my bride of 46 years that we have been together. And uh, she's been such a wonderful part of, of my ministry. Um, I can't say thank you enough. Having said that, are you taking care of your pastor? There shouldn't be any hesitation there. Yeah, take care of your pastor and your pastor's wife, will you? Look after them. Pastoring can be a, a, a lonely job. The demands, uh, you have no idea. Trust me, you have no idea. Take care of your pastor. Encourage your elders to guard them, to surround them, to be his friend, to watch out for his wife as well. Will you do that? I'll never have to say that again to you, I'm sure. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you today, and uh, that little bit of background. But let me read the lyrics to a song as we start this message this morning. It's a song by Natalie Grant, and the words are this. Help me want the healer more than the healing. Help me want the savior more than the saving. Help me want the giver more than the giving. Oh, help me want you, Jesus, more than anything. Amen? Would you bow your heads for prayer, please? Father God, as we look at this story today about the man born blind, I pray that not only will our eyes be open to see your word, but may our hearts be open to what you have for us there. May my words not interfere with what you want us to receive from Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Now let's see if I can operate this thing. There we go. One thing I do know. These are the words of a man defending himself. And yet he's not just defending himself, he's actually defending Jesus as well. Now his story is found in John's Gospel, chapter 9. In fact, it takes up the whole chapter, 41 verses. That tells me that evidently this is an important story, right? Now the characters in the story are a man blind from birth, Jesus, of course, and the disciples. And in the story, you'll find that the, the disciples have a theological question for Jesus about the man born blind. We'll look at that later. And appearing as the villains in the story, kids, who, might, who do you think that might be? Who would be the villains in the story, typically? The religious leaders. The Pharisees. Draw whatever parallels you want, okay? <laughs> I'm not drawing any, all right? And of course, there, there's a handful of witnesses to this. The blind, the blind man's neighbors, as well as his parents. And all of them play a part in this narrative. Now, the location is in Jerusalem and, and up on the Temple Mound, actually. In the immediate context up to this point, you could summarize by saying there have been some really heated exchanges between Jesus and the religious leaders. So much so that they're 
back and forth has deteriorated into name-calling. You ever been into one of those kind of conversations or arguments where there's no more reason? It just deteriorates into name-calling. Now just, well, let me give you an example. They accused Jesus of being demon-possessed. Now, have you ever been in an argument with someone and you're, you know, that's the bottom line? You're just demon-possessed. I've never done that of you. Hopefully not. They did. You're just demon-possessed. And then they trump that with the worst insult of the day. You're just a Samaritan. Not very politically correct, right? Now, just prior to the story of the blind man to test Jesus, the religious leaders bring a woman caught in adultery. Remember that story? It's in chapter 8. I don't have the verse on the overhead. It's John chapter 8, 5 and 6. But here's what they say. They, they come to Jesus with this woman, and, and they bring her to him to try to trap him again. And they say, look, the law of Moses says that we're to stone this woman. This woman. What do you say? Of course, it's a trap. They know if Jesus answers, yeah, stone her, go ahead, pick up stones and stone her, he'll be in trouble with the Roman authorities, right? If he says, no, 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 just let her go, then he's in trouble with breaking the commandments of Moses. So it's a trap. Jesus then challenges the religious I started to say leaders, but how about if we change that to a more descriptive word? Hypocrites? Is that all right? He gives them this statement in verse 7. If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Wow. And you recall what happens next. No one remains to condemn her. They one by one get up and, and just walk away. And no one is left except Jesus and the woman. And he turns to her and he says, Woman, where are they? Your accusers. She says, No one, sir. No one's here to accuse me. Jesus says to her then, Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus always left people better than when he found them, right? And he does the same with us. Now, it's important to remember all of that context. What has taken place just prior to our story of the blind man in chapter 9, it's important to remember the context in chapter 8. For right after Jesus has this conversation with the woman, Jesus says these words, and this I have on the screen. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When you accept Jesus as your Savior, when you believe in him, light begins to fill your soul. Light begins to come on in your mind and your heart, and your life begins to change, begins to be renewed, begins, you begin to walk in the light, as we'll see later. Anyway, that statement that Jesus makes there in, in, in chapter 8, verses 12 and 13, that statement did not go over well with the Pharisees. Well, what did we call them a moment ago? The hypocrites, right? So on and on go the accusations and the condemnations of Jesus. 
Jesus then beautifully explains his mission, why he even came, why he's even there. And he, he explains that by saying, I am one with the Father, and I am one with the Father's purpose. What I'm doing is not what I want, want particularly, as much as I surrendered everything to my Father, and it is what he wants me to do. That's why I do what I do. And then Jesus kind of lands a knockout punch when he says these words, verses 42 to 47 in chapter 8. He says, I have not come on my own. Now listen carefully to how he responds to the religious leaders. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Who's he? The Father. Now, now listen to this. Why is my language not clear to you? It is because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? You see the economy there? You see he's placing them in? If I'm not telling the truth, then tell me what it is that I'm not telling the truth. If I am telling the truth, then why don't you believe? It's one choice or the other, right? He goes on to say, he who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Wow. They called him demon-possessed and a Samaritan. But Jesus tells them exactly who they belong to, right? You got that? Pretty strong stuff. Well, down but not out, they fire back. Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Repeated it. Now you can read the rest of the exchange. It's heated so much so that Jesus calls them liars and they, the religious leaders, lay aside their verbal stones and literally pick up stones to throw at him to end it. The text says that Jesus hides himself and slips away from the temple. Now imagine, this happened around the temple, folks. Can you imagine something like that happening in the foyer of the church? Wow. Lock the doors, right? Talk about conflict and controversy. And all of that leads up to what is about to take place in chapter 9. So let's look at the story now. John chapter 9, verses 1 1 to 5. And he went along, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There's the theological question. Because they believe that someone who, who had an ailment like that must have done something in his life to deserve that. It was punishment from God. Either that or his parents. Somewhere in his genealogy, someone did something wrong and the punishment was passed on down through the lineage. So they, they asked Jesus, who was guilty for this? Why would this guy be born blind? It's punishment. 
Jesus goes on, responds to their question, well, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. There it is again. Same statement. Light of the world. And then Jesus does something very unusual. You know, Jesus could have just said, open your eyes, right? He could have just spoken the word and the man's eyes would have been open. His sight would have, like you can't say restored because he'd never seen before, but his eyes would have been open for the very first time, right? But he didn't. What day did this miracle happen on? The Sabbath. The Sabbath. See, there's a little bit of mischievousness in Jesus. There's a little bit of, look, you have all these rules and regulations. You heap these things on mankind. Let me show you something here, how ridiculous everything that you've done is. All this that you've heaped on the people. So Jesus spits on the ground. <laughs> I like that. He makes mud with his saliva and he puts it on the man's eyes, telling him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. I have a picture of that place. That's a picture that I took. I was able to go there a couple years ago. You can actually uh, walk through Hezekiah's tunnel and you come out right there. Pool of Siloam. Beautiful place. You can see the steps are much higher. The water level was higher years ago. So the steps go right down into the water. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now remember, this guy is blind from birth, right? He was blind when he left Jesus. He never sees who spits on the ground and makes mud and puts the mud on his eyes. He doesn't know who does it. He can only hear him. He can't see him. He doesn't know who told him to go and wash in the pool. So with mud on his eyes, he makes his way to the pool. His eyes are now encrusted with drying mud. He goes to the pool. He dips his hands into the cool water, splashes the water onto his face. He rubs the water into the mud on his eyes. The water rinsing mud from his once lifeless eyes. Light begins to penetrate the darkness that was formerly there. The water comes into focus. Sunlight reflecting on the water, sparkling like dancing jewels. Miraculously, the sensation must have been amazing. Think about it. It's like nothing he has ever seen before because he has never seen before. He sees his face reflected in the pool. This is new. He's never seen his reflection up till now. He had no idea what he looked like. He could only feel his face. He could only imagine. Now he sees for the first time his reflection. He sees the eyes staring back at him from the reflection in the pool. He studies those eyes so long, trapped in darkness. His eyes. He rubs his chin, his nose, his ears. He has felt them often before, but now the sensation is joined by the sense of sight. 
He runs his fingers through his long hair. He sees his cheeks. He looks at his hands. He takes in his surroundings, these surroundings. All familiar to touch, but now with unclouded vision. The sensation shatters the dullness of senses. He was blind, but now he sees. And the reflection is not just a face, it's his face. It's the reflection of a face that has seen God. The face of a man who now sees something some of those with eyesight will never see. A child of God who knows in his heart that what has happened is a miracle. A miracle that he will soon discover was given to him by God himself. Suddenly a surge of energy just overtakes him. You ever wake up in the middle of the night with, with you know, energy that, you know, you thought you were going to bed to get a good night's rest, and all of a sudden you wake up and you're like, where did all this energy come from? It happens. He gets this surge of energy to do something. And it dawns on him, I must go home. I want to see my family. The words plain in his mind, see his family. We say things like that, right? Ah, I think I'll go see. For this guy, it was a reality for the very first time. I want to see my family. He must really see his family and friends. Playfully slapping the water like a child, he rises to his feet and runs where before he walked cautiously because there were so many things that could trip him up in his darkness. But now he sees those objects that would have tripped him as opportunities to jump over and jump on as he leaps his way home to see his family. The narrative simply says that the man went. I like my imagination better. <laughs> he bounds home. His neighbors, people who knew him only as a blind beggar, are confused by what they now see. Isn't this the man, they say? Oh, it just looks like him. Can't be him. No, only looks like him. He hears the confusion and he insists to them, it's me. I'm the man. That's right, you are the man. How did this happen, they demand. His neighbors are dumbfounded by this. How does a guy who's been blind all of his life suddenly have his eyes opened? Is this the same man or isn't it? Some thought so, others thought no, it only looks like him. Can't be. The blind don't just suddenly get their sight back. The guy we knew was blind from birth. This doesn't just happen. Can't be him. Must be a mistake. So they confront him. Okay, how were your eyes opened? Want to see the reply? The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go wash, to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. That's it. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know never saw him, right? 
So it's time to get professional help. So they take him to the Pharisees. The text says, they take the man who had been blind. I love that part of the narrative. The man who had been blind. Unfortunately, the day on, again on which Jesus healed the man was the Sabbath. So the Pharisees now question him. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. They, they wanted to get on record how this happened so that they, they could accuse Jesus on record. The man says, he put mud on my eyes, I washed, and now I see. Simple. The Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight because, uh, again, it had been done on the Sabbath. And notice that they are more concerned with when it happened than they were with what happened. The narrative continues. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Folks, the Sabbath is a beautiful thing. Amen. We saw the little video clip earlier. God gave something to us as a gift, but the gift was never meant to be worshipped. In other words, the gift was never meant to become more important than the gift giver. And that's a real danger for us as Seventh-day Adventist Christians. We can make something like that more important than who gave it to us. What was more important for the man, the day on which he was healed or the person whom gave him the healing? Now, I want you to catch this. Well, anyway, finish that. This, is not the, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? He broke the Sabbath, so he's a sinner, so he could not have healed the man. That's the reasoning. Now, I want you to catch this. They turn back to the man now, and I like how John phrases this in verse 17. <laughs> Finally, they turned again to the blind man, what have you to say about him? It, it was your eyes he opened. At least they're now admitting that he had his eyes open miraculously somehow. Yeah, well, what do, you, what do you say about him? Your eyes were the ones that... He opened your eyes. What do you say? The man replied, He's a prophet. I don't know. He's a prophet. To deny the miracles... In particular, this miracle, they attempt to cover up the fact that he was blind to begin with. Here's what the text says. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? Is this your son? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? Now watch the parents' response to this. Well, we know he's our son. <laughs> and we know he was born blind. But how he, how he can now see, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. They seem just a little uh, evasive here, right? And the text says why. 
His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had, de had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. Now this goes on for a while, back and forth, with a formerly blind man saying, I don't know who he is, he's a prophet. Well, how did your eyes get open? I don't know, you'll have to ask him. Ask the parents. Parents said, ask him. He's a, you know, it just keeps going back and forth. Back and forth. Verse 27. Look, I've already told you. And you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? This is the, this is the blind man whose eyes are open. This is his final response to the Pharisees. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Now that answer really gets them fired up. The insults now come furiously. They tell him, you're just a sinner. How dare you lecture us? That's in the text. And they throw him out. Now keep in mind where this is taking place. This is taking place up on the Temple Mount, in the Temple Square, right in front of the Temple. They throwing him out literally means that he is thrown out of religion. He is no longer welcome to come and worship at the Temple or even to enter a synagogue, for that matter. He's thrown out. Jesus hears that the man had been thrown out, finds him, and has only one question for the man who was born blind. The man who has his eyes now opened. Are you ready for the question? It's a question that goes to the symbolism of blind eyes being opened. It is a question that confronts every one of us here today. It is a question that has its roots back there in the Garden of Eden and has its, its issue in the heart of man since the fall of man in the Garden. A question that will be the final question asked at the last days of this earth's history. My friends, it is the question each one of us must ask ourselves from deep within from deep within the recesses of our being. For it is a life or death question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? That's Jesus' response to the man. I so love this part of the story. His blind eyes are opened. But now Jesus is really going to open his eyes. See, it's one thing to be able to see. It's another thing to be able to see spiritually. For when Jesus opens the eyes, the spiritual eyes, the answer becomes clear, focused. It is like, it's like having never, ever, able, ever been able to see. And suddenly you can see. It is like having... Total pitch blackness before you constantly. And suddenly the light goes on. It's like wandering around in a cave. Are there any spelunkers in here? I'm from Oregon. We have a lot of, uh, a lot of caves, a lot of uh, lava tubes. You can go and explore these. And it's fun to go in those. And in some places you, you get down and, I mean, you're really cramped. If you're claustrophobic, you don't want to do this. But you go into a, into a cave 
And the fun thing to do is turn the light out and experience total pitch blackness. I, in fact, I did this in, uh, in, in Israel in Hezekiah's tunnel. You can take this long journey through this tunnel, and in some places you literally have to turn sideways to get through. And you're wading in water, and there's people in front and people in back, and they give you a little tiny gift flashlight to take in. And so I was letting, the people behind me were way behind me. People in front of me, I let them go, and I just stood there and turned the light out. Just experienced the total pitch blackness in there. It's just kind of a, an interesting thing to do, because then you appreciate the light much more when you see the light. That's the point of the story. You appreciate your eyesight much more when your spiritual eyesight is in tune to the light. Remember Jesus said, I am the light of the world. When Jesus opens the eyes, the spiritual eyes, the answer becomes clear, focused. It is like having never been able to see and suddenly you see. It's like wandering around in a cave, as I said. And Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the formerly blind man answers, <laughs> remember, he's never seen Jesus. Who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Ah, and here it comes. Jesus said, you've now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. Wow. You know, folks, we are known, as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we are known as people of the book. Do you know that? People of the book. We study the Bible. We know a great deal about the Bible. We call ourselves the remnant. That means, you know, we believe that we have a special message for the end of time. The danger is this, that we read, that we know, that we are informed, that is, that we are able to share with others what it is we believe, that we're able to prove to others and ourselves that what we believe is right. It's important to be able to defend what you believe. It's nice to have knowledge. But verse 35 is a standout here, folks. It's a rock-your-world, life-changing question, whether you are just starting out in this journey we call experience with Christ, being a Christian, or you've been in it your whole life. So I invite you to let the question sink in. Let it come home. Let it take root like a seed planted in your garden. And that question is, do you believe in the Son of Man? Is Jesus enough for you? And, and the follow-up is found in Jesus' words, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. And it is all as simple as what happens next in the narrative. Check this out. The man says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said this in response to what just happened. For judgment, I have come into this world so that 
the blind will see and those who see will become blind. The contrast between the blind man and the religious leaders. So folks, ask yourself the question now. For Jesus said, now judgment has come into the world. Well, what does that mean? Simple answer. Jesus is looking within us. He is looking to see if we really have our eyes open. If our blindness has been miraculously healed. There's a huge difference between knowing and having knowledge and beliefs and knowing Jesus. Huge difference. The judgment is about who we know, not what we know. Nothing worse than those who have eyes but don't see. So is the difference between claiming to be a Christian and knowing Jesus, is that the issue? Yes. It is the difference between profession, what we claim, and living what we believe, or rather following who we believe in. So Lord, open our eyes to see that it is in you alone that we have life, eternal life, spiritual life, that's the judgment. Now fast forward. Chapter 17 of the same author who gave us this story, John, who, by the way, is my favorite disciple, my favorite Bible writer. Paul's number two. <laughs> Chapter 17 and um, John's Gospel, he writes these words. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's it. Again, I'm a retired pastor. 37 years of ministry. I've known a lot of Adventist Christians who know a lot about what it means to be an Adventist Christian. But let me ask you the question, which is better? To know a lot about truth or to know Jesus? Amen. To know Jesus as a friend. When we truly know Jesus, it is about a relationship. A relationship is about spending time together. I don't think my wife would be married to me for these 46 years if we really didn't know each other. Now, again from John, this is in a letter that he wrote years later. He says, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. What is it God wants us to know? His Son. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. The understanding is given, is given us. Well, what is that understanding? It's truth. It says in the text. That's, that's the purpose. The purpose of truth is that we might know Jesus. So folks, that's the, that's the one thing. The blind man got it. Will you?